Hello, welcome to This is Autism, a new podcast from the Northeast Autism Society. Each month we'll be exploring the subjects that really matter to autistic people, their families and the people who care for them. We are really, really privileged in that we do live quite an authentically autistic life most of the time. Um, but that is a, you know, that is a really privileged place to be. For our first episode, we'll be looking at autistic masking, what it is, why people do it, and what it looks like. You don't know what's happening and you just assume that you're broken in some way and there's some fault with you. And then all that does is then reinforce the masking even further because you feel like there's a need that, you know, I now have to cover up my brokenness and work even harder not to be broken. We have three guests here to help us do that. They've all thought a lot about masking, whether that's in relation to their own experiences, their research or their work. I'll just introduce them. And I'll start with Kieran Rose, who writes and speaks as the autistic advocate. Thank you, Julie. It's lovely to be here. Uh, my name is Kieran Rose, as you said, and I'm an autistic advocate. I'm a researcher and consultant and trainer and uh, have been fighting for the rights of autistic people for a number of years now. Hi, I am Dr. Amy Pearson. I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Sunderland. Um, I'm also a late identified autistic adult. And, and I have worked previously with the Northeast Autism Society and also with Kieran, um, collaborating on various bits of research, which you'll probably hear about today. Thank you. And we also have Jodie Smitten, who is a practitioner who supports autistic children, families and schools. Jodie, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi. Uh, thanks for having us. Um, I'm an autistic ADHD late diagnosed adult, um, also parent to three neurodivergent children deliver various different talks and training and support families around the country to uh, advocate for their children's needs, mainly within education, uh, but also offer some parenting support. And just completed my master's in autism uh, with my dissertation focused on, on masking in autistic children. So my name's Julie. Um, I joined the Northeast Autism Society about a month ago. I have an autistic son who's 25 now. Um, but while he was growing up, we didn't really know about masking. Um, and it's not something I've ever discussed with him until recently. And that's largely through reading the kind of things that you're writing and blogging about. Um, so for somebody who's perhaps not familiar with the concept or the term, um, let's start with discussing what is autistic masking and if I could just ask uh, Amy to, to start us off on that. So I was, I was hoping you would go to Kieran because I think Kieran has a, a really great answer for this <laughs> um, but we very much sing from the, the same hymn book. So masking is, it's a really complex concept so to kind of break it down to the simplest definition, it is the suppression either consciously or unconsciously, so you might be aware that you're doing it or not aware that you're doing it, but suppressing or hiding aspects of your identity or amplifying aspects of your identity, which I think Kieran will probably talk about a little bit later on this morning, um, in order to either pass in social situations as perhaps non-autistic or to make it less likely that people might recognize that you're autistic, or to keep yourself safe and avoid stigma associated with being an autistic person in a majority non-autistic society. 
probably the part that I would emphasize, which Amy alluded to, is is there's a conception at the moment that it's it's all about hiding being autistic or appearing more neurotypical. Um, where actually a lot of my thinking recently has been more about a notion that I call projecting acceptability, where it's about meeting the needs and expectations of the people around you and your 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 mask molding itself to whatever that might look like. Right. Okay. Um, so is it something that uh, somebody would do unconsciously or consciously? It developmentally, um, it, it's a process that grows as you as you grow older. Um, so there are aspects of it which start out as conscious decisions and remain conscious throughout your life. There's a surface behaviour, but it's a bit like that that um, twee analogy of the iceberg. And um, there's much more going on underneath that are unconscious processes, um, and it's it's those ones that are the ones that really kind of need to be picked out because surface behaviour you can change, you can modify, but it's the the stuff that's underneath that really needs to be identified right okay and amy you mentioned um somebody wanting to feel safe um why would they not feel safe and why do they need to mask so one of the things that q and i have found recently in some research that we've been doing is that a huge number of autistic people experience victimization across a lifespan some of this is classified as childhood bullying, so being picked on by peers, but some of this is, is really nefarious and personal victimization as well that occurs from people we might classify as friends, family members, um, or people that we have intimate relationships with. And when victimization occurs within these relationships, it leads to us kind of taking the idea that there must be something negative or bad about who we are and internalizing that, so starting to believe it ourselves. It might not be something that you consciously talk about with other people, but it starts to mold how you think about who you are. And that leads to people then suppressing aspects of themselves in order to avoid further victimization. So thinking about the things that people might have picked on them for or might have abused them for and trying to keep that to a minimum so that other people don't do that in future. So we found in our research that people describe masking as a survival strategy rather than just a social thing. It wasn't just something that allowed them to fit in in social situations. It was something that made them feel like they might be able to maintain some safety when they're interacting with others and avoid further harm. And is it something that um, that you do or that you've noticed um, your children doing? Um, is it something that all autistic people do to some extent can I just ask Jodie that yeah I mean it's 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 so complex like Amy's already said um that there's aspects of masking for me personally that are coming out all of the time that I didn't even realize was there um something that came up just yesterday uh, I posted um on my Facebook page about parenting and talked about how previously when I was really masked, um, I parented in a way, you know, in public, I parented in a way that was much more about other people's perceptions of my parenting than my children's needs. And as I was typing, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is masking. I, I was I was masking because I was concerned about other people's judgments and them thinking negatively of me or my children. Um there's so many aspects it impacts so many aspects of your life like every aspect of your life do all autistic people mask um 
I would probably argue yes. I can't obviously speak for everybody. Um, I think there's so much of it that is unconscious. I certainly had no idea that I was masking until I was given the label of what masking is. Um, and that's certainly something that came up massively when I spoke to young people is that it was that light bulb moment when they heard about what masking was, when they read about what masking was, when somebody explained what masking was, they were like, Oh my gosh, I've been, I've been doing that forever. Didn't realize that it wasn't something that everybody did to the level that they did. Everybody masks, whether autistic or not, everybody modifies how they appear in social situations and shows different parts of themselves, depending on what the context is and who we're interacting with. So we all monitor our identities, but marginalized people, whether they be autistic um, or black or from another racial or ethnic minority group, um, or whether they might be LGBTQIA+, have to hide really core aspects of themselves for different reasons. So it isn't just to switch context and appear more flexible based on our social interactions but to maintain safety within those social interactions, which I think is really important. We all mask to a degree, but some people are masking different things and things which have more of a kind of a really strong impact on their own identity. Another thing that differentiates it from the the kind of average human behaviour, the average context switching that, that Amy's just described there is outside of social situations the mask carries on as well so it isn't just a situational thing although i see it can be situational aspects of it um when it's something that you do developmentally and it's something that you grow up with it's something that's with you all the time and it's something that you're doing all the time and there are even times when you're you would think that you are in a safe space like at home where maybe you would think you could be more authentic and 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 drop the mask to a degree if you want to use that kind of terminology but even there there are elements of yourself that are so suppressed that they don't come forward when you are autistic and your experience particularly around communication and sensory uh, information and things and the way that you react to sensory information are very not mainstream so as a child if you express needs around those things quite often because other people don't experience those things it's very easy for them to dismiss them so you're invalidated and when that happens on a continuous level as you grow older you learn to suppress those things as well because people don't believe you and you learn not to listen to your own body as what your body's telling you as well you kind of lose sight of who you are in that way and i'm going to shut up now because i'm on a lot of and Jodie wants to say something okay, unless you write notes of what i needed to say Jody. or wanted to say so it doesn't get lost um just going back to what kieran was saying about when you get into those safe spaces that you um you do have a loss of self so you do continue that um that sort of unconscious front but there's also that that slightly more conscious thing for me where even when I'm in safe spaces not so, actually almost not at all now but when I'm when I'm at home and um, there would be times where there were those shoulds well you know I, I I I should be like this or I shouldn't be like this because of the stigma attached to um my authentic self in it, it it was quite a conscious it was quite a um, I, I, sh- I shouldn't be presenting like this or I shouldn't be um, um, allowing my children to be like this or um, because that that's not the outside neurotypical way of being. Uh, so it was like a, a, a constant internal, I um, can't think of the word, battle really between 
what my authentic self and um, how the outside world expects me to be. And then to follow on what Jodie said, because it's a really excellent point, um, when you do get to those kind of safer spaces where you can, you know, the, even when there's Jodie's just really well described there that you're, you know, the, the coulds of and shoulds and I should be acting in this way and stuff. There's also much of that safe space time is taken up with thinking about what's happened when you've not been in the safe space and deconstructing all the conversations that you've had and quite often berating yourself for things that you haven't done or should have done or wish that you had done as well. So there's an element of, of kind of, of self-blame there and internalized ableism and all of those kind of things. And, and again, it's kind of... Um, unless you know that this is a process that's happening for you, unless you've got the vocabulary, the words that we're using now, the way to describe this, you don't know what's happening and you just assume that you're broken in some way and there's some fault with you. And then all that does is then reinforce the masking even further because you feel like there's a need that, you know, I now have to cover up my brokenness and work even harder not to be broken or to project, as Amy was saying earlier, kind of, um, you know, to, to exaggerate who you are because that's the expectation that the other people have of you. So you give them what they want to see. It, it, it's again, it's such a complicated thing. These are human beings, you know, we're the most complex creatures on the planet, as Amy likes to remind me quite often. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So when you say you're hiding core aspects of yourself, what kind of things, what, what kind of forms does masking take? So it can be hugely varied. It might be things like, so in, in the research, what we've seen is that people talk about things like modifying their facial expressions. You know, we don't necessarily express emotion often in the same ways as neurotypical people, or that might not look the same or it's salient. So we might mimic the facial expressions of others, change things like our tone of voice. And that's one of the things that I think often happens very unintentionally. So depending on who you're interacting with, people might mimic the tone of other people or their prosody, so kind of the, the cadence and, and how their voice goes up and down within the sentences that they say. And that might happen very reflexively, so starting to, to mimic how they talk and, and talk in a similar fashion. Um, it might be really superficial things like wearing the same clothes that other people wear or pretending to have the same interests, so pretending to like the same music um, or minimizing how much you talk about your interests so not you know going on a, on a massive monologue about you know your favorite tv show or washing machines or whatever it is that you're interested in that thing that really really sparks your passion so those are some of the really kind of i guess basic strategies that are often talked about in the literature um but autistic people talk about a huge range of things so suppressing stims trying to look really subtle so you know maybe not flapping your hands or moving in in you know kind of bigger ways but doing something really subtle so fidgeting with things or you know carrying small uh, toys or items that you move around with um things like not responding to sensory distress so suppressing that response if there's a really loud noise or a horrible smell or a really bright light, you know, kind of trying to keep yourself really neutral and not responding to that so that people don't realize that you're really distressed, which again links into what Kieran was saying about then starting to ignore your internal signals, which really then starts to impact on how much energy we're able to maintain. So 
if you are constantly suppressing how you feel and starting to ignore those signs telling you that you're getting distressed, you A, don't recognize that you're getting distressed, but B, spend more energy than you have, which means people start to get really exhausted and potentially experience things like burnout. Thank you. Yeah, that was uh, a long list there. Is is there anything, Kieran or Jodie, that you would like to add to that? Uh, I suppose I would just add that that, com- you know, that completely mirrors uh, the research that I did with young people, children and young people, that it, it's... Um, it's it's very much the same. They're taking on that same level of suppression, that same level of stress in a much smaller body. Um, from a really really young age, as well, I've seen children. Mark, well, Kieran talks about it when, when when we've done our masking talk. But I've I've seen children mask from preschool age, toddler age. Uh, so that level of suppression, particularly those internal suppressions, um, which I think is so often missed. Um, so what you know there was there was so much about previous research has been so so much about uh people hiding their autism that they haven't actually there's not been enough talk about the internal suppression which got talked about quite a lot by the young people i spoke to in, in that suppression of um internal distress internal emotions internal upset uh and sometimes that is about the invalidation that they've received before because somebody else hasn't had the same experiences them uh and sometimes it's you know it also there's so many of us that are people pleasers fauners and not wanting to be a burden and that's particular particularly an issue for young people in schools where they don't they don't want to stand out within a classroom and they don't they don't want to be picked out by the teacher or have to have to leave the room or because then you know that that brings on them all sorts of social demands before what's wrong why are you leaving the room um so it, it you know it just adds to the complexities of it really okay time to take a short break we'll come back in part two when our guests talk about their own experiences with masking and the effect it has had on their lives Have you heard about the Northeast Autism Society's Family Development Team? We offer support to autistic people and their families before, during or after diagnosis. We have toddler groups, family workshops, support hubs and home visits. And we also have a private Facebook group you can join called Family Networking, where you can share experiences, tips and support with other families just like you. Find us on Facebook under Northeast Autism Society Family Networking or on our website at www.na-as.org.uk. Welcome back to part two. We've talked about what masking is, but what I want to move on now to is why people mask. I think at the heart of it, um, it's two important words, which are stigma and invalidation. Um, firstly, the, the the stigma around um, behaviours that aren't perceived as normal, shall we say, uh, normal in inverted commas. Um, there's a kind of uh, mainstream idea about how uh, what's socially acceptable, how people should behave, how 
people should think, how people should feel. You know, it's really hubristic because there's like eight and a half million species on the planet and all of them act completely differently, but yet human beings all have to be exactly the same. You know, um, so so it, it, it's completely random, but this is the world that we live in um, that's created all these kind of social norms and social expectations. Um, so when you are... A child, um, and this goes right back to babyhood because autistic babies are a real thing, and autistic babies have sensory experiences um, which we don't see and can't. They obviously can't verbalize and, and vocalize. Um, so autistic babies experience invalidation pretty much from the beginning around their sensory experiences because nobody's aware that that's what's happening with them. So um, their needs are ignored to that extent. Um, and because they can't communicate those needs, then, you know, as they grow older, they, those needs then get suppressed or so on and so forth. And then as we learn to communicate, um, because autistic people can tend to communicate in very specific ways which are different to non-autistic people, those communication needs get invalidated over time because you can't talk like that and you can't be direct and you can't be honest because you have to wrap everything up in socially acceptable behaviors and so on and so forth. Um, and then, you know, and then that ekes out into really every aspect of, of our being. We, as autistic people, um, even if we know that we're autistic or not, we're pathologized on every single level of who we are around the way that we eat, the way that we move, the way that we think, the way we speak, the way we, you know, even how we sleep. So, Everything about our being is is critiqued and corrected by the outside world, or at the very least, because that's our experiences, we perceive critiqueness and correction from the outside world as well. So there's kind of two things running concurrently. So as as you grow older, you are invalidated on every level of who you are consistently, unless you change your behaviors to meet the expectations of others um, and again you are stigmatized once people know that you're autistic then there's a, there's a whole other level of stigma comes there as well when people are you know view autism as a very negative thing generally and as, as something which should be overcome and something which should be fixed and you know you're not normal you're weird and, and all of those kind of negative connotations that come with it um, so yeah so effectively that that's how we are marginalized and excluded from a society that calls itself inclusive and accepting Thing. Right, and, and Jodie, is that your experience um, when you're sort of supporting children or with your own children? Yeah, I mean, there's there's always um, lots of talk uh, from young people about not wanting to be seen as weird, um, wanting to be able to make friends. The word weird came up quite a lot in my research, um, which is an interesting one for me because I think weird is a good thing, but clearly not everybody feels that way um so there was lots about that external presentation and and that survival need to um be accepted into the, the majority neurotype um but then there was also uh bits and pieces around the internal state as well so one young person described that um you know when when there was something exciting exciting going on, um, whether that be at home with the family or in school, that sh that they didn't want those around them to feel disappointed that they weren't enjoying that experience. So uh, they didn't they didn't want to upset anybody. They didn't want to um, feel a burden. 
things. So again, it falls into that people pleasing uh, so that they would pretend that they were okay and that they were having a nice time and there'd be a big smile on their face because everybody around them's having a nice time. So they should be having a nice time. Um, so if they outwardly don't look okay, people will say, oh, what's wrong? Are you okay? And they don't have the answers. So it's much, much easier to say I'm fine because if somebody asks you okay, you're okay, it's a massive social demand when you don't know the answer to that. And sometimes in the work I do is almost, um, I, I talk a lot about my own experiences and, and, and challenges and, and experiences that I find overwhelming or distressing because if you live in a world where the majority of people don't have the same experience as you, how are you ever supposed to know what your challenges are? And um, so young people have this massive blind spot as to how they're feeling and why they're feeling it. And and that, again, is linked into the masking. Yeah, thank you. Kieran. Yeah, um, <clears throat> Jodie's raised a really, really important point there, which is why masking is so heavily intertwined with poor and negative mental health and mental health outcomes. Um, because when you have that narrative of, you know, like, everything in my life is a disaster and people blame me for stuff all the time and I'm always the one at fault for everything. Um, when you don't have the answer to why you don't feel okay, because of the way that, the, you know, we have monotropic neurology, it's interest-led, and that also means that we we problem-solve. Um, you know, we look for answers, we connect the dots and, and come up with the answers. When you don't know why you're not okay and everyone else around you is kind of focused on you as being the problem the only solution that you can come up with is that you are the problem um that you are therefore there's something wrong with you you're broken in some way um, because everyone else is absolutely fine and you're the one causing all this disruption to everybody else and all these problems and you're the one who's having relationship failures and can't make friends or struggling to to be around other people and and kind of meet those social expectations there's a constant an internalized narrative there that develops that you're at fault you're to blame and everything around us reinforces that everything from the people that are around us to uh, the media representations of autism the cultural the research narratives around autism um, and not just around autism because there are there are narratives that talk around these negative negative and inverted commas behaviors um, that don't even use the word autism but still are applied to us as people who disrupt the social kind of will that you know that, that gets greased by everybody else but we're the ones sticking a spoke in the wheel so you know there, there's, a, there's a real problematic narrative there of not only self-blame but that external blame as well that there's something going wrong with us and can you imagine the pressure that 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 that, that puts on a child who's growing up who's trying to figure out who they are in this world who's, who's developing their sense of identity and everything around them is telling them that their identity is wrong and that's what we grow up with that's the narrative that we have can i just ask you um all about your own personal experiences of masking. Um, when did you first realise that you were doing it? Um, has it changed throughout your life? It's a really interesting question. Um, so I, as someone who was only formally diagnosed last year, um, masking has become something that I've unpicked personally for myself over the past few years. But I very distinctly remember having a, a discussion while I was at university and saying to a friend of mine once, I think we were standing in the kitchen, and I was like, you know, I feel like as you get older, 
you don't get any less weird, do you? You just learn how to hide the weird bits of yourself from other people more effectively. And they were like, I've got no idea what you're talking about. And I, <laughs> I thought that must be a universal experience that everybody must have just kind of gotten by. And I remember as a teenager, particularly, you know, I, as a kid was very weird. Um, and I was really, really into the X-Files and I used to wear my X-Files t-shirt all of the time. And I would talk about it constantly and no one seemed to care. That was fine as, as a really young kid. And when I started secondary school, that's, that's when my difficulties started. Um, I found it really hard socially and I kind of got to the point where I was like, right, I need to appear a certain way in public in front of other people. I need to appear cheerful. I'll smile all the time because people like people who smile, right? Like people like nice people. So I'll be nice. And that didn't help either. It just made people feel really annoyed because I think they thought I was quite disingenuous. Um, and so from being a teenager, there was this sense that there were bits of myself that I needed to hide. And I remember sitting making a list once of things that I thought might be the thing that annoyed other people about me. So if I could just work out what it was, then I could fix it. I could try and you know make sure that people didn't see that anymore. And I thought everybody did that. That, that must be just universal. Um, and they don't. And you know, that's something I didn't realize until really the you know, the past few years kind of making sense of realizing that I was autistic. Um, and starting to to unpick my own experiences. And Kieran and I have discussed this a lot. And something that really helped, but was also quite, I guess, distressing for me was I was doing research around masking um, and reading about other people's experiences and, and seeing myself in those experiences. It really resonated with me. And it was really hard to read. But at the same time, it, it was a massive sense of validation there seeing that actually other people did experience it, there were other people that were like me. Um, yeah, that was a, a really massive shifting point in my own life. Okay, uh, yeah, so similar to Amy, I've been on a sort of a journey of um, self-discovery and unmasking yeah. over the last sort of four or five years. Um, it's uh, It's been an interesting journey full of chops and changes and ups and downs, and um, I always describe it as pretty epic. Um I think, I think for me, I I realised that I I saw the like uh, social camouflaging aspect in that I would see other people that I wanted to be like and look like, and I would dress like them. Um, but a really big realisation is sort of happened for me in that um, what I've done is sort of reconnected with a time where I didn't mask, and that was sort of my um, teenage. Um, interestingly, my teenage years and my uni years where I was really um, quite eccentric and really expressive through how I dressed. I was very different, um, but always really just confident about that. Um, and this is who I am. Take it or leave it. Um, and actually, my um, mask really became really sort of strong, I suppose, when I became a parent. Um, I've always had a special interest in um, child development, attachment, things like that. So, um, and I had my children relatively young. I had my first child at 24. Uh, and I wanted to be part of that community. I wanted to be part of the, the, the coffee mornings because I was fascinated by, by babies and watching them grow and develop. And, um, and I, didn't, I didn't even realize how I was doing that, but I was slowly mimicking 
um, it was sort of quite easy for me in some ways because my special interest was in um, babies and 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 you know that sort of developed like breastfeeding and labour and so that's all that's all these women talk about in in these spaces and so so in terms of the conversation that was really easy for me but um when I look back now on pictures of myself when my children were young I I'm like oh my gosh like I'm all, I'm cringing because I can clearly see that it it wasn't it it wasn't me um but it's it was how I presented myself in order to fit into that to that space um and it it was it, that was a massive realization for me. I was like, oh my gosh! So I'm sort of yeah, I'm completely reconnecting with how I how I was before that period of my life, um, and have you know completely different perspectives and views now around um, child development and attachment and all things like that with the autistic lens. You know, I always say that actually having my children. Um, saved me which sounds really dramatic but if it wasn't for my the identification of my eldest child as being autistic I don't know at what point I would have recognized myself and that's a really common pathway actually for lots of um, autistic adults. Thank you. Um, Kieran what what your own personal experiences with masking? It's a really hard question. I've had a long 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 time to think about this. I was diagnosed when I was 23, which was 20 years ago. Um, so growing up, my overriding memory growing up was being scared and being in fear and kind of making myself as small as possible. Um, uh, that was that was at school. That was kind of – but also I, I grew up in a very, very – we all grew up in unique households, but mine was incredibly unique. Um, and um, so I never really felt safe at home either. So there was, I had no real escape route. So I don't think I ever got to the point where I had anything that I recognized that I was masking because masking was my entire way of being. Um, and and as, even as I got older, um, constantly feeling detached, um, just kind of, living really really superficially not able to kind of um not not even not even allowing myself to go into great detail on certain things and and i kind of you know i I had intense passions around things like science fiction and reading my bedroom was literally a library every wall space was covered in shelves and books and you know and and i lived in that existence but that, that that very small room was the only room where i felt that i could be authentic but when my my being authentic was to lose myself in other universes and other worlds, and so being outside of that was terrifying. And I knew on a, on a conscious level, I knew that I was living this really really superficial life. And I constantly would say to myself, "There must be more to this. There's more to me. I know there's more to me, but I can't ever get to a place where I feel safe enough to kind of explore that and, and know what that that is." Um, growing up, my friendships looking back now weren't friendships they were people that i had spent significant amounts of time with because i was stuck in the same classroom as them and and went through school years with them and stuff like that so so as i grew into a teenager i self-medicated through drugs and alcohol um i was i was on antidepressants um, as an early teenager because people thought that i was depressed and really what all this was was a suppression of who i was 
So once I got my diagnosis, you know, lots of people say, now I, I got my diagnosis and, you know, I started to explore who I was and, you know, I started to make these realizations about myself. But back then, there were no other autistic people because it was such a long time, no other autistic adults, um, apart from Rain Man, who, you know, was not relatable at all and turns out not to be autistic at all. Um, so, you know, so so I had nothing. And it's really interesting what Jolie said. I've heard Jodie say before about her children saved her life. My first child saved mine, um, but as a baby, not as a, someone who was identified a bit later, um, because when he came out, we my wife got taken to theatre and I was left with him in the middle of the night for three hours in a dark room, not knowing what to do with this baby. No, like nobody came and checked on us, but he didn't cry. He didn't fuss. We just, he just sat and stared at me. Um, and we had this like whole, I had this whole conversation with him in my head and I knew that how can I be a good father to this child when I'm living this such superficial existence, which then sent me on this trajectory of kind of finding other autistic people, which I'd never actively gone out and sought before, um, you know, and, and making then all these self-discoveries about myself through other people's experiences because they were so relatable. It's such a hard thing to put into words. And I've spent the last 10 years writing about this and I've still not been able to put it in words well enough to kind of uh, the paper that Amy and I wrote last year um, is the closest that I've come to being able to kind of encapsulate what I felt. Um, and it still wasn't good enough. And now we're, we're writing a book on it and it's probably still won't be good enough. And, you know, there, there's, it's so difficult to translate into words how it feels to be so suppressed and to project this version of yourself to other people that looks okay, that people still see as a bit weird and odd, but underneath you are in pain and struggling and wanting to connect with other people and unable to find those connections and just being so fearful of everything. It's terrifying, but also privileged to have gone that because we can sit here and talk about these things now and help other people that are going through those things and and parents who have children that are experiencing this who have no idea that this is what is going on with their kids even if they know or think they know what masking is it's it's just so deep and it takes us right down to the core of who we are as humans thank you um and given um the, the, your perspective and given the fact Kieran and Jodie you have a neurodivergent children um are you vigilant to signs of masking within them or does it make you treat them differently how what what is your approach to your own children and masking um jodie if i could start with you there because my eldest um masked so um effectively for want of a better word i didn't even recognize that she was um autistic initially um i've worked with autistic children since i was 17 um but didn't recognize my own daughter and mainly because the children that i'd worked with also had um learning disabilities and complex health needs and um so my daughter presented very differently i was able to recognize that when she was sort of at home she was becoming very distressed uh i came from in it from a very uh, i did a psychology degree so I, you know i went straight down the attachment trauma what have i done to my child route um which is actually a really 
really common pathway that lots of parents take. They don't consider that their child might be autistic, again, which is why talking about masking is so important. I've had so many parents come to me that when I've talked about masking and and, and autistic masking, um, it is suddenly like the pennies dropped. Oh, actually, it never. I never considered that my child might be, could possibly be autistic. Um, so it, you know, opens a, a whole door. Um, so I recognised that um, that she wasn't okay once once home, and that there was something going on there from a really really early age. But it just took me a really long time to, to put the pieces together. Um, I recognize now when my when all of my children are masking my children's masks all look very very different one of them is very much that um exaggerated version of self uh sometimes one of them will present as being um mute uh so it's, they, they're all they're all completely different um but i know when my children are masking um and we avoid those situations as much as possible you know we we live a a lifestyle that that means that they are as much as possible only with safe people in safe places my eldest in particular who was a really effective masker being out of school has massively helped with that um and i would say that actually um through support from myself being out of school accessing neurodivergent led provision and mentoring um they are very unmasked so much so that like you know when she does little things in certain situations like it just like fills me up like it feels just so so good because I'm like that was very authentic um that was her autistic authentic self and other people might be judging that now and my child probably knows other people are judging that but they've got to the point where like because this is all normal for us how we live is normal for us and um, so we've normalized so much stuff um but yeah there are occasions where you know these things still happen um but we are really really privileged in that we do live quite a authentically autistic life most of the time um but that is a you know that is a really privileged place to be yeah Kieran, uh, how about you and your children? Um, I think because I kind of really started out my real journey of kind of self-discovery when my eldest was first born, unfortunately, they've had to... um, (laughs) they've had to deal with my learning journey and and so we've been on a bit of a journey together kind of thing so obviously i have made mistakes with them and and stuff like that as anybody does with their first child anyway you know you like you you, (laughs) the oldest are usually the most messed up um unfortunately um but you know as 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 they've grown older one of the things that we did from very early on like that that's been autistic from the moment they were born, all my children have known that I am autistic from the moment they were born. Um, my all of my children um, to me were obviously autistic. So from 
the moment they were they 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 came out, even even preconception with some things, and um, we, we've we've known and known kind of kind of and just things have been very obvious to us. So that has changed how we've parented. We have a household where there's no hierarchy, really. You know, mum and dad make decisions about finances and stuff like that because we're the adults and we earn the money and things like that. But we work as a team. We make decisions together. Um, we talk about things together. Um, we validate their communication. My youngest, um, they speak, but they choose to be minimally speaking. So there's lots of different types of communication going on in our household. There's a lot of text communication and drawing and like hieroglyphs really. And, and, you know, and so there's multiple different levels of communication going on and that's absolutely fine. We sought from a very early age to recognize and understand our individual sensory profiles. Um, so that, you know, we know that when there's Big clashes that there's a reason for those big clashes and it isn't just something that needs to develop into an argument about behavior um, and things like that. So we don't control our children like other parents might not think that they control their children, but there is a huge element of control in parental and child relationships. Um, so we don't control like that. We give our children lots of freedom. And the idea for me is I have four pillars um, around uh, autistic people and how they should should be supported, which are if you uh, validate autonomy, agency, acceptance, you get authenticity. So if you bring those three things in, if you you give enable your children to have agency over their decisions, to have autonomy about their choices, um, and so that they can accept themselves and we accept them, so there's a lot of self understanding that encourages them to be authentic. Now my children have I've got two children in mainstream school. I did have three children in mainstream school, but like Jody, um, my youngest is now home educated. Um, and the reason for that is because the oldest two don't mask as much as they probably would have if we didn't know what was going on um, because they are you know, validated at home. So they can go into a school environment. We have good relationships with their teachers and talk to their teachers all the time and are very firm and strong about the fact that we validate our autistic identities. My youngest cannot be in a school environment because it's just not right for them. They were, they masked massively he heavily. Um, we recognize them as PDA now. Um, so, so they need autonomy and you can't have full autonomy in a mainstream school. So they're educated at home where their needs can be met. So it has massively changed how we parent. Had I not randomly picked up a book by the psychologist from the 1960s, Dr. Spock, and looked at a list of the diagnostic criteria that was in the back of that book when I was 22, I probably not would not be sitting here right now having this conversation with you because I would be still, if I was even still alive, I would be still heavily masking. I might not even have the relationship that I have. I might not even have children, you know? So, so reading, randomly picking up a book and reading that one thing has completely changed the direction of my life and then changed how I parent. I know I would be very different if I didn't understand any of this. And then I know that the pressures and the trauma that I would have been putting, unwittingly putting on my kids, did I not have this knowledge that I have now? Thank you. And what's come across strongly there with Kieran and Jodie is uh, you talked about privilege and sort of joy of um, discovering or rediscovering your authentic selves. Can I just finish by asking Amy, um, since you've started to look at um, yourself, is that something you've found as well? Is there a 
joy in doing this or a freedom? There's, there's definitely a freedom. Um, I, I don't know whether I, I would say I've had the same experience because I think I'm still, there's still a lot of stuff that I'm unpicking and I think I probably will be for quite a long time. I do think I'm very lucky in that I've realized and they've realized as well um, that the majority of people that I know and I'm good friends with are neurodivergent. I have a neurodivergent partner. Um, and so around the people I'm very close to, I've been able to be myself and they've been able to be themselves. And so I think there is a joy in, in being more authentic, but I think learning what your authentic self looks like takes a lot of time. Um, and a lot of a lot of introspection, which is really tiring, um, and also kind of boring sometimes. Just thinking about yourself a lot it's it's not the most fun. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think I've I think I've had a bit of a different experience. I'm still I'm still on the way. I think it's going to take some time. Thank you, Amy. Yeah, it's a complex process, and thank you all for talking so openly and honestly today. In our next episode, we'll talk about how parents and teachers can spot the signs of masking and what they can do to offer support. It's absolutely vital that they do. So join us next time for more insight and advice. In the meantime, why not subscribe to This Is Autism so you never miss an episode and leave us a review. You can also follow the Northeast Autism Society on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and TikTok or find us at www.ne-as.org.uk.